Welcome. Uh, my name is uh, Nick Robbins. I'm a professor in practice for sustainable finance at the Grantham Research Institute at the LSE. And it's my real pleasure to welcome you to this event, Financing a Green and Just Recovery from COVID-19. This event is part of the 2021 LSE Festival. And we really want to focus in the next hour on generating some ambitious ideas for the year ahead. Clearly, 2021 will be dominated by how the global economy combines recovery from COVID-19 with the shift to an inclusive and sustainable economy. Leading figures in government and business and civil society have all pledged to build back better, but the response to date does not yet match the scale of the challenge. Before COVID, our economic system was unsustainable, unequal and unsta unstable, and we have to ensure we don't go backwards. First, the recovery needs to be green, uh, delivering net zero emissions, resilience uh, to physical impacts of climate change, and also restoring nature, not least uh, as we recognize that the loss of biodiversity is a major driver of zoonotic disease such as COVID. And second, the recovery needs to be just, creating livelihoods that confront the inequalities that were exposed and obviously exacerbated by the pandemic, particularly in terms of gender, race, age, and income, with developing countries hardest hit. Mobilizing finance will be crucial to delivering this, this recovery. And here we have two forces working in our favor. First, COVID has deepened and not deflected the financial sector's commitment to sustainability and elevated the S, the social dimension of ESG. Unprecedented flows of capital are seeking to invest behind a just and green recovery. Second, we have a policy opportunity with the USA now back on board, pointing to the potential for breakthroughs potentially at the G7 and the G20 this year, as well as the biodiversity and climate summits at the end of the year. So to bring some practical insights uh, to these uh, challenges, these opportunities, we have four leaders uh, with us today. First, we have uh, Naeem Abu Jaudi, who is the CEO of Candrium uh, since 2007, but his background in investment and asset management goes back many years before that. Then we have uh, Sharon Burrow, General Secretary of the International Trade Union Congress, the ITUC, which represents over 200 million workers across the world. Ratin Roy is also joining us from New Delhi, uh, Managing Director at ODI for Research and Policy, and previously an Economic Advisor to the Prime Minister of India. And then Maria Marie Thomas, CEO of the UK's Green Finance Institute, with a long career in the banking sector. I think these are just the right people to help us chart a way forward, and you will have a chance to ask your questions. So as we go through, please place your questions in the Q&A, and then we will choose those that are highest uh, ranked uh, to pose uh, to the panelists. But before I come to this fantastic panel, what I want to do is engage your brain as participants with a poll. And uh, we'll just have a poll just to see what your te the temperature you, in, in your thinking is about our ability to deliver a green and just recovery. So please, could we have the poll? Nice, simple question. Are we able to mobilize the finance needed for a green and just recovery from COVID-19? So we have uh, just about 45 seconds to answer that. So please, off you go. T take your pick. Okay, so the poll will close in about 10 seconds. So if you haven't chosen, do so now. Great, and uh, could we close the poll now, please? Thank you. And show, let's see the results. How are you feeling today? So 
That's a very interesting result. So we're able to mobilize the finance needed for a green and industrial recovery. That's 72% interesting results. Uh, and so really it's now over to the panel to see how uh, we, can, uh, we can do this. So I'd like to turn first to you, uh, Naeem, um, and uh, really get your thoughts about what you're seeing uh, in the investment industry as we emerge from COVID and how particularly investors and asset managers can help to advance efforts for, for this green and just recovery. So Naeem, please, over to you. Yeah, th thank you, Nick. Thank you for this invitation. It is a very important topic for me. It has been a long-term commitment for me personally and for Candriam as a company to embrace ESG for the last 25 years. It is fair to say that for many years we have missed the warning signs that are today impacting our planet and our society. And uh, as you highlighted, Nick, we have to build back better. We have to turn this recovery into an opportunity to build into a green, growing, and more inclusive economy. And I, I think the silver lining of this COVID crisis, it's a wake-up call. And today we have the stars that are aligned between the people who are willing to change, empowering the government to move forward, but also the businesses and the, the financial sector is ready to jump in. And we can recognize that there's some positive news and good news going in the right direction. I would like to list some of them. More than 110 countries today are, are committed to becoming carbon neutral by 2050, which represents 65% of the global CO2 emissions. We have 20% of the global market cap of companies that have committed to cut emissions at scale. We have public bodies and regulators are moving in the same direction with the Green Deal in Europe, in the UK, but also the EU taxonomies. Last but not least, the investment industry is also moving into the ESG investments. And uh, just as we, we see the numbers, we moved from 20 trillion five years ago to 40 trillion that are invested in the ESG investment business, which is a huge amount. Just looking back 20, 20 years ago, when I, I used to cover the EAG uh, part of the business, it was like shouting in the desert. At that time, the whole market was only 2 trillion to compare with 40 trillion 20 years later. And in each business meeting we have with institution client, they are all asking for advice on EAG and on how to implement EAG in their portfolio. Another positive news is the fact that, as you said, this pandemic has brought the S at the forefront. And clearly today, it is we are seeing the interdependence between the E and the S together. And we cannot manage E without managing or looking at the S. And clearly, we have to see how to accelerate towards the climate action while avoiding the social disruptions that is already here and not continuing to widen the social disruption. That for that, we need huge investments, huge investment in order to find the right balance between the loss of jobs in the high intensive energy sectors and also the creation of new jobs in greener business. And this huge investment, we have to invest them into training, education, reskilling, and clearly moving towards 100% renewable energy, 
by 2050 can create more than 50 million jobs, but at the same time, we can lose 27 million jobs. That here, clearly, we have to find the right balance. And I think we have all a role to play, governments, first of all, helping through fiscal advantage, limiting the subsidies to channel assets into the real economy. Uh, I think implementation of a global carbon pricing system is key uh, to reinvest part of the benefit in the E, but mainly in the social aspect. And this is key as well. And here, I would like to talk a little bit of, of the investment and the financial sector. I think we have a duty and we have a role to play. First of all, we can accelerate change through channeling capital into projects that will facilitate a green and a fair transition. There is a lot of assets in the financial uh, part and we, we can channel them and create jobs, create investment, and this is something uh, we can continue doing. We have to fully integrate, this is a second element that is key, climate and social aspect as risk and opportunity in everything we do in the whole financial system. We have to continue developing financial instruments that have direct or indirect impact for greening the economy or social bonds, for instance. And last but not least, as an asset manager representing investors, we have a duty to practice what we preach at our level, but also as an investor to be an active engager, we, to, to see engagement proxy voting. And uh, for instance, Candream uh, is an actively engaging with company at our own level, but also through 50 collaborative initiative. We don't do it alone. And uh, climate, for instance, has been on the top of our agenda and we voted in favor of 90% of resolution on climate change. Uh, we have also, number four, a duty to continue bridging the gap on education, and that is key. The last element I would like to highlight is active ownership is key because it will have a real impact on companies and corporate, and they have also a key role to play in the fair and just transition. I would like to finish with four ideas. I don't know, you told me five minutes, maybe four quick ideas that are uh, outside the financial system. We have, I think, first of all, solution we require collective and international effort, global framework and large investment. And th th that cannot be done only at the level of Europe that represents 10% of the global CO2 emission. We need to have China and the US on board that represent more than 40%. Two, we need to change the horizon of investment. We have to move from short-term to long-term investment, and that is key. Three, we have to change the way how we calculate our GDP and integrate a measure of true standard of living, including health, well-being, education, change in equality, and natural environment. And this is key. Why the government is asking corporate to include risk and opportunity for climate and, uh, and social, why we don't evaluate the government on externalities as well and extra financial. And the last element, it has to be long-term and we cannot do it with election every two to four years. We have to create an independent planification committee to tackle the huge challenges that we are facing for the future generation. Well, Naeem, you're clearly out of the desert, which is great. Uh, really good. <laughs> great set of ideas to kick us off. Um, Sharon, if I can turn to you in, in, in Brussels, I, I, I believe, um, um, 
How do you see this, particularly in terms of the, the sort of jobs and livelihoods crisis we face coming out of COVID? And how do we connect that to the, the climate and the nature crisis? Over to you, Sharon, please. Thank you. So, Nick, this is probably the biggest challenge we face. There's no doubt that recovery must be just, sustainable and inclusive. And if we want one example of just how hard that's going to be beyond climate, beyond the breakdown in uh, the labour markets, then have a look at the ugly side of vaccine nationalism. So we have serious work to do and it will take all of us. But if we're going to have a just, sustainable and inclusive recovery with a resilience that ensures protection and security against future shocks, then for working people, that means a new social contract with five critical demands. They are jobs, jobs and jobs, climate-friendly jobs with just transition. That's the heart of security for working people. But they must actually be decent work. So a floor of rights as we see a breakdown in the labour market where increasingly now 60% plus of the global labour market works informally. That is no rights, no social protection, no rule of law, no minimum wages. This is not a foundation of resilience to build a future on. And then we need universal social protection. I think when you look at the impact on the poorest and the poorest countries, it's just a global scandal that 75% of the world's people have little or no social protection. We need global solidarity to build systems that underpin resilience, not just for workers and their families, but indeed for business when, in fact, the crisis is on and there will be further shocks. So finance is critical and the ESG lens cannot be undone. When you look at the two other demands we have, it's about equality. It is income but it's all, and sharing prosperity, but it's also about gender and race. And if we're building an inclusive future, then ESG sits at the core and finance, as I said, is critical. All investment must have a sustainability lens. We can't go back and say we need 5 10 20%. They're the targets we were at a decade ago. But if finance, whether it's a company investing, a government investing or indeed private investment or our pension funds, it must have a sustainability lens that is about decent work and rights and the environment. Because if we are serious, Nick, we cannot build a future on the dehumanising exploitation of too many of our global supply chains today or the carbon emissions that have polluted our world and put the planet at risk for uh, livability of people and business, or indeed environmental destruction in terms of our waterways and oceans and our forests. So we would say to you three major things. One is all investment, pension funds, private equity, corporate investment, government investment, must have that sustainability and, uh, and indeed, uh, uh, a justice lens. Secondly, we need to make sure that disclosure is at the helm of that because we've seen pledges and I'm always delighted to see people making commitments, but we've seen now a decade or more 
of commitments of trillions and trillions of dollars and still we risk not being able to stabilise the planet for human beings, let alone for sustaining business and jobs, which for us are two sides of the same coin. So disclosure is critical. That's on the agenda, but it's not yet universal. And, and the third one is that we must look at global solidarity. Some of this, as I said, is about, uh, you know, sharing wealth, looking at debt relief, looking at, uh, you know, the capacity for liquidity swaps and special drawing rights, whatever it takes. But in climate terms, it will take shared investment, but will also take our capacity to share technology. So our current IP system is simply not fit for purpose if we're going to get this job done. Now, we don't have to punish, uh, you know, those with the patents or the intellectual property. We can have technology pools or indeed in the current uh, world pharmaceutical uh, patent pools where we invest to be able to share that technology as a whole. The final word on finance is we need to renovate our taxation systems because when you have now effectively global monopolies of uh, not just uh, the uh, digital companies but indeed investors who are able to move money in and out, we've all known about the, tra the traditional illicit flows of capital from, you know, those areas of uh, fossil fuel development and mining in developing countries, but we also know that there's a lot of taxation escaping uh, the actual net, given the global nature of business. We've also got more billionaires on the planet. And frankly, you have to call it out. You can't spend this money in, in one lifetime or even 10 generations of lifetimes. So we need wealth taxes to help distribute. We need a digitalisation tax and we need to finish the agenda on financial transaction tax with a base rate of corporate tax that is reasonable for all companies to pay. So we have a lot to do to build a, a level playing field. We want business to succeed, but not if it's exploitative and not if it destroys the environment because that can't survive and we can't survive if we're about a serious, uh, seriously stable and sustainable future where people can live on this planet. Thank you so much, Sharon, and uh, interesting thoughts there on the sort of tax front. And one of the things I didn't mention with uh, Ratin previous uh, was the CEO of the National Institute for Public Finance and Policy in India. So he's a, a big fiscal expert. So Ratin, over to you uh, in New Delhi. Thank you for staying up late. We're really, really looking forward to your thoughts, particularly from a uh, emerging and developing country perspective. How does it seem for you this uh, green and just recovery? I mean, are, is build back back up still a, a, a catchphrase or how do we really fit it with some substance? Over to you, Ratin. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. Thank you for inviting me, Arisi. Okay, I have, I think, at least two points to make and possibly a third if I have time. So the first point I want to make is partly hackneyed and partly influenced by COVID, which is the same old point that emerging economies have been making for years. The cost of capital in emerging economies is way too expensive because of regulatory and policy risks that add to the risk-weighted cost of capital. The attitude of the European Union does not help when 
they decide to adopt, if I may say so, a Jesuitical approach to this problem and sanction capital that they perceive is not green. I think the time has come for the West to recognize that it's not the, the time has been there for five years, I said this in Paris, that for emerging economies, we are not trying to rebuild a bunch of dirty stuff that we have done for a hundred years to gain prosperity. We are trying to gain prosperity by improving productivity. And I think we can all agree here, and certainly in my career it's been the case, and that's why I care about green, otherwise frankly I wouldn't, that everything that I do that is green improves productivity and improves the dignity of human labor. If I go green on my energy systems, I stop young children going to my coal mines and digging coal out with their bare hands. There's a huge dividend in terms of productivity, the dignity of labor and what Sharon said, decent jobs to going green. But the financial markets do not recognize this one whit, one whit in the cost that they, that they assign to regulatory risk. Rather, all they seek to do, including Basel, is sanction non-green, not reward green. So this has to change. I think this is particularly important after COVID, it's point 1B, because what you're seeing across the world is a profit-led recovery, which I think is profoundly unjust. In India, and in many other emerging economies, listed companies are making unprecedented profits while GDP has fallen. We talk about justice. What can be more unjust than that? That listed companies make more money when GDP falls, which means they're not making more to make more money. They're making less and they're cutting costs of what? Of labor, small suppliers and the small people. And they're making more money. And this is sanctioned almost by every government in the world by offering credit stops, stops to these very, these very companies while not recognizing that the, imports, uh, the income support policies, particularly in emerging economies, to support the people who are suffering from this pandemic is disproportionate. So what you're going to see is a huge rise in inequality. And if you're going to talk about our green future, I'm afraid that if that green future does not include, I know Sharon will agree, but I'm saying this to the entire audience, an active macroeconomic policy to increase the share of wages in total output post the green recovery, then there's going to be no green recovery because I will be the first to oppose it. So that's point one. I think this is a crisis that COVID has brought to our future and it's at the bottom of a just transition. If a just transition means that the polluters of yesterday become the profit earners of today, if British Petroleum, Reliance Industries India, De Beers, hmm, General Motors, the polluters of yesterday are going to be the profit makers from green today. You are going to have a revolution in your hands and the world of finance had better wake up and understand this. There's nothing more profoundly unjust than yesterday's polluters. Norway was the first, of course, with its sovereign wealth fund. I hope I'm not offending any Norwegians. They made their money out of, you know, polluting the planet. And then they set up a sovereign wealth fund, which now says we'll invest green. This travesty has got to stop. And I think finance needs to play this role in stopping this travesty by not accepting these parameters, taking into account macroeconomic variables like who gains from green and who loses from green. And I'm yet to see that coming out of finance regrettably.
My second point, so I made my first and second points there. I thought they were 1A and 1B, they're 1 and 2. To paraphrase, we need to build back better by making sure that the share of wages and small businesses in total output goes up and not down. And if Green does not do that, I will be the first to call it out. If you're going to ravage the livelihoods of people, as we have done in this pandemic, and if former polluters are going to become tomorrow's profiteers, I'm happy not to see a green recovery. You know, you can take your global warming and live with it. I'm being very honest. Okay. The second part is more positive. I'm delighted that we are moving away from a unipolar focus on renewables to a focus on important things like the built environment and agriculture. And I'll tell you why as an economist, I think this is important. Renewables are an intermediate good. A unit of energy can be used to light a light bulb in a village in India for a small child to get an education or to keep people, I imagine it's cold in London now, so to keep people in their shirt sleeves in comfortable central heating. From a purely green perspective, it doesn't matter the purpose to which this energy is used because, you know, it's a unit of green energy. What do you care? You get your global warming target. You know, the interesting thing about agriculture and the built environment is that is not true. You cannot divorce the purposes to which energy is used from the source from which that energy is produced. I think this is a very, very important point. It's no coincidence that in the history of this world, capitalists, polluters who have gone green has focused on energy. Of course they would, because that lets them off the hook in terms of the choices regarding what is energy used for and who is consuming it. You are able to divorce that question, as I just illustrated, from the question of how clean is the input produced. You cannot do that with housing. You cannot do that with agriculture. So I think finance needs to shift its focus increasingly to agriculture and housing because that would be far more just and I think far more progressive than this silly unipolar focus on energy that we have seen over the last 20 years. My final point is to take you back to the Brunton report. That was about consuming less. From what I see now, we are seeing energy is a good example. You can consume as much if it is clean. I think we do have to worry about patterns of consumption and production, as we have said in the SDGs and people seem to have ignored it. And start asking, and finance must ask this, you will get finance in greater measure if what is consumed and who consumes it provides you with a better common planet than just how that consumption is energized uh, through green or no green instruments. Thank you. Thanks, Ratin. Uh, we're going to swing back uh, to, to Europe, uh, Ria Marie, to, to, to London, um, and get, get your thoughts particularly. Um, I know that you work with a lot of financial institutions in terms of um, encouraging them not just to make commitments, but also to find mechanisms which can channel uh, the finance into uh, the real economy. And I think sort of that actually this is, doesn't just stay in the financial system, but gets into the businesses and households and regions uh, across not just the UK, but across the world. So I'd be very interested in your, your thoughts and potentially actually the built environment. I know it plays to one of the things the GFI has been working on very, uh, exceedingly over the last year. But Ria Marie, over, over to you to get your thoughts, please. 
Thanks ever so much, Nick. And thanks for uh, the comments from the other panelists, a real tour de force so far. Um, I wanted to pick up on your opening comment, Nick, about the unprecedented flows of finance into the environmental, social and governance arena. Last year was a record breaking year in terms of green and sustainable finance. It's something over $545 billion of bonds issued, which is twice as much as 2019 issuance. Sustainable lending reached almost $200 billion. And then we saw huge inflows into ESG aligned funds. In the fourth quarter alone, European sustainable funds pulled close to 100 billion euros in net new money. So they were basically taking 45% of overall funds flows in Europe. And that momentum is likely to continue or accelerate. We're not going back to the silent desert that poor old Naima had to navigate years ago. And not just because of heightened awareness of ESG risks, because of those you know, posed by climate due to global zoonotic pandemics, or because investors have come to realise that ESG funds offer comparable or even in some cases better performance than conventional funds, but also because of the prospect of tighter regulations. Changes to MIFID II directive will encourage more retail flows into sustainable funds because financial advisors are now legally bound to ask a client about their sustainability preferences. So this is all going in the right direction when it comes to private finance. But to answer your question on how we translate all these commitments into investments in the real economy, and here in the UK, only 64% of financial transactions are primary investments into the real economy. Um, I'm going to limit my comments to three points, um, and they are the race to trillions, pricing signals, and education. The latter seems very apt for an LSE hosted event. Um, so on the race to trillions, I mean, the race to zero is becoming the global default. As Naeem mentioned, with over 110 countries now signed up to net zero targets, and now increasingly we're seeing the same for asset owners, asset managers, and now the banks as well. But these long-term commitments really quickly need to translate into short-term milestones that are fully integrating climate and the associated social outcomes into core strategy and not purely as a risk and compliance consideration, but a strategy that focuses on positively redeploying capital. Shrinking to greenness is not a strategy that I'm gonna to sell to any mainstream financial chief executive. So what does that look like in practice? And, and with apologies, Nick, to the LSE, there's a framework developed by my friend Dan Esty at Yale, which is based on analyzing leading organizations who have integrated climate considerations and ESG into their business models. It's a four-step pathway. I think it's really instructional for all types of business, including financial institutions that are really looking to move this beyond commitment and into practical action. So bear with me. I'm going to run through the four stages very quickly. Stage one is the initial engagement when an organization is focused purely on compliance and risk mitigation. Stage two is systematic management, and the organization starts to develop its reporting, target setting, certifications, and it begins to make some organizational and process development to align with those targets. Stage three is you start transforming the core. Sustainability strategy really drives your product and your process innovation, your revenue, your growth, as well as all your cost saving plans and stage four competitive differentiation. That's where your brand, your business model, your customer, your employee engagement, they're all driven by sustainability consideration to achieve competitive advantage and commercial gain. 
And that's transition from stage two to stage three is going to be the critical one over the next few years. The race to zero needs to become the race to trillions. We have that investment requirement of six trillion dollars per year globally, according to the best estimates that all for climate adaptation and mitigation measures. And two thirds of that needs to be invested in developing countries where we're currently seeing investment in the region of 60 to 80 billion dollars a year. That's a staggering investment gap. So sadly, no green bullets, but given the speed with which we need to act, it's absolutely clear we're going to need far closer alignment of public finance with capital markets. So firstly, we need to ensure that public sources of finance are being deployed to best effect to channel global capital flows, this wall of money um, towards on the ground solutions that we need for climate stability as well as financial stability in prosperous communities. And that involves retrofitting our homes, decarbonising our heating systems, decarbonising our transport system, restoring forests, pivoting the high carbon industries towards the electric economy and investing in regenerative agriculture and infrastructure that is resilient to changing climate conditions. So as Ratin mentioned, way beyond purely looking at power, energy and utilities. And that's all key to our work at the Green Finance Institute, but there needs to be far greater focus on identifying the public and philanthropic interventions that could attract private capital by de-risking investment. So it's first loss guarantees, residual value guarantees, contracts for difference to provide revenue certainty, figuring out where we deploy them, how we deploy them, and making sure we've got the right vehicles with the right risk appetite to deploy public finance this way, in a timely and agile way, in partnership with the investors and mainstream financial organisations. I'm going to be very quick on my second two points. Second, we need a carbon tax. Right? The markets respond to price signals, and these are a function of government policy, supervisory bodies, global standard setters. And at the moment, the markets, as we've heard, they're mispricing assets, they're not fully managing risks, and they're insufficiently evaluating performance because we're not taking into account climate change appropriately. It's a market failure. And investors cannot correct market failures by ourselves. We've got to ensure that there's a pricing mechanism that works, and that's the role of government, which is why an effective carbon tax is key. As Steve, as Steve Wager at Aviva says, carbon pricing is critical to internalizing the externalities of climate change. Just love that as a tongue twister. But anyway, third, education, integrating climate science and social metrics into everyday financial decision making is a pretty nascent area for most. And there's clearly a need to deepen the skills and capacity of the market's financial professionals to support customers and clients through a just climate transition. The skills that got us here may not get us where we need to go. And that is true from the analyst intake all the way up to board level. And I'm really pleased at the Green Finance Institute. We've been working with government and 12 professional bodies, such as the Chartered Bankers Institute, to introduce the Green Finance Charter, which ensures that green finance is being included in the core curricula and all the new qualifications and prof professional development of their members. But throughout my career as a banker, I had to pass annual certifications on money laundering, sanction screening, whole raft of other topics. And given that climate change poses the greatest systemic risk to the stability of the financial sector, 
um, is we need to add to all these voluntary programs and educational opportunity. There needs to be a mandatory annual climate finance testing for all finance practitioners. And with that, I'm going to leave it there. Look forward to the discussion with the other panelists. Well, thanks, Rimri. And as someone who also used to have to take all these regulatory tests, I'm sure Naeem probably does as well. And I think Ratin probably did as well. That, that's an idea of the, the annual uh, climate and sustainability test is a, is, a, is a really good one. Thanks to all of you who are participating in this. Um, we're getting a nice flow of questions. I've got my questions. I mean, really fascinating intervention. So first one, if I can, if I can take from the Q&A from uh, Alejandra Padin-Dujon, I hope that's your name right, Alejandra, uh, from Antigua and Barbuda. How does the green finance, taxation, and just transition of the workforce in the developed world translate into resources for developing countries most vulnerable to climate change? So I think perhaps joining up some of the discussions we've had with, with, with Ratin and Naeem and, and Ria Marie and, and, and Sharon. So, I don't know, uh, maybe start with you, Ratan, on that one. How do we connect uh, and, and particularly ensure that the financing is flowing into developing countries? Ratan, thought, thoughts for you? You can't and you never will because taxation is a sovereign instrument that occurs within borders and there's asymmetric power in rich countries and their needs will always exceed uh, their priorities, so it's impossible to do so. We have seen this across the world. What I would propose instead is something that at ODI we have been talking about for a while. We'll be bringing out a report on it very soon. Is a system where we try and agree globally on international fiscal transfers. So I don't care how you finance them, taxation or borrowing. If there's a public good which requires money to go to places where it is needed for a just transition, then we organize a system of international fiscal transfers, which are essentially transfers from the budgets of countries uh, that are willing to pay for this global public good by putting that money into developing countries. Now, if you say that's a fanciful idea, let me tell you that it was invented by John Maynard Keynes in 1947 in something called the Bretton Woods Mechanism, mm -hmm. where if a country has balance of payments problems, then essentially rich countries who subscribe to the IMF pay for that balance of payments problem to be solved in the global public interest. Hmm? So it's not something new. It's just something that's not been tried in the case of sustainable and just development. So rather than focusing on getting money out of people, which is a sovereign government's business, I think the focus should be on how the money that different governments get out of people should be spent for the common good. There's a long tradition of doing so, and uh, we can build on that except for different purposes than it has been deployed historically. Okay, thanks. Rimri, I'd like to turn to you because we know we have this COP26, the climate COP, we also have a biodiversity COP, and these, uh, these events become successful to the degree to which um, public and private finance can really be channeled into places that need it most, the developing and emerging economies. It'd be really interesting to get your thoughts about what you're seeing in terms of how um, sort of the investment capital, the capital markets that you're seeing can be channeled in a, into the developing and emerging economies this year. Um, yeah, thank you for that one. I see in the chat that there are some questions, you know, querying, you know, if we've got these 
40 trillion of ESG aligned capital, is that something like 40% of all professionally managed assets under management, now saying that it's got an ESG flavor, you know, how come when the 6 trillion per annum we need is not getting addressed very quickly? And clearly we've just, we've got a huge mismatch in risk appetite where some, I think some standard chartered work recently showed 64% of the largest investment funds in in Europe are focused on dollars and euros. And uh, also we know that investors favor liquid assets rather than investing in long-term infrastructure projects, especially in jurisdictions where they perceive a lot of political or foreign exchange risk. So I think in answer to your question, um, Nick, I think what we're seeing in this in the run up to COP, it's a real magical window in the UK with our G, hosting the G7, hosting the COP. This is a real opportunity for the 1.1 million finance professionals that sit in the city of London to put forward innovative ideas about how we overcome some of these complexities. One project that I'm working on with a number of investors at the moment is looking at a credit enhanced guarantee facility where we actually use uh, government concessionary capital, government and concessionary capital to provide guarantees for projects in country so that we can actually mobilize in the sort of middle income countries, the local pension funds, local institutional investment that would love to invest in green infrastructure, but can't do because it's not investment grade. So let's not swamp those countries with Western funds that skew the market and skew pricing. Let's actually create green finance mechanisms, you know, use it, you know, real collaboration to create those finance mechanisms domestically. But I just think that the real challenge this year is to make sure that we're using the, the creativity and the innovation for which the financial sector is renowned to really inform policy and make sure we're creating investable opportunities, investable markets. I am going to die on the hill of guarantees, not grants, wherever possible from government financing so that we can actually start crowding in the private capital that has got the message that this is this is the area that they need to be investing in. I hope okay. I've answered your question. I got on a bit of a rant there, but I hope I answered your question now. It's good when people rant in a, in a, in a positive way like this, um, because actually it's when we get passionate. And I see that Ratin was uh, getting excited as well. And that Naim, I mean, I would be interested in your perspective. I mean, in terms of stewarding hundreds of billions of savings uh, for your clients, individuals, and institutions uh, around around the world, and particularly this emerging market piece. Where what do you see the investment world being doing, particularly on this this question of um, funding uh, into emerging markets? Naim. It's true that uh, the emerging market is still very challenging in the ESG and the way. We, we, we have funds managing assets with the ESG approach on emerging market bonds and equity. The challenge is to have the, re- the right data and uh, to have uh, the right screening of the companies. Then it's still a challenging for the time being, but the, it's moving in the right direction. I think um, one element for, for me on the COP, I would like just to add this, this it's, it needs to translate into tangible action because we spoke about the Brundtland report. It was in 1987. We have been talking about sustainability since then and uh, it's not a lot that has been done. Now we see an acceleration. I think there is a wake-up call after the COVID crisis, but we need to translate into tangible action. We need all countries 
to really increase their commitment to reduce their green, green uh, gas emission and to do it in a fair uh, to their low income uh, citizen. And lastly, I think the COP26 represents an opportunity for most vulnerable developing countries to make their voice heard because the issue is that they, are, they don't have a, the G7, the G20 are not always open for the developing countries. And it's a big issue because today the developing countries are saying to the developed country, you have been polluting for years and you are not even doing a lot, even since the COP20, uh, COP21, since Paris Agreement, nothing has been done. We are not respecting the, the agreement of the one and a half and two degree. We are far, uh, far away and we have really to reduce it by two, three percent. Then we are taking a lot of, uh, it's, it's, it's a big challenge if we want to respect the carbon neutral in 2030 or reduce it by 50%, we are not there for the time being. We are not there then. It is something that we have really to communicate. Finance can do, but uh, it is the whole organization. It's at the level of finance, government, corporate, and also the end investor will have to change the behavior. It's not about just investing in green economy because in order to invest in green economy, we need to 2050 to have the green economy replacing the fossil fuel economy. Then we cannot change it in a day to the other. Then between now and 2030, it's 30 years. And it's, it's a behavior from A to Z. It's the whole stakeholders of the economy that will have to play their role. Right. And Sharon, your, your thoughts here. I was very struck when you were talking particularly about the international supply chains, particularly in developing countries. And we know that many have uh, workers in, in, in many developing countries have really been at the receiving end of a lot of um, uh, unjustified behavior by companies down supply chains. But, but particularly this, this question of how this year that actually we develop, d- deliver on our sort of both sort of climate finance uh, promises in terms of public and private, but also in terms of these broader uh, questions of um, investment into the developing and emerging worlds. Any thoughts there building on what we've already heard? So I think you have to look at it in a layered way, and many people have already addressed this. First and foremost, there is a need to build capacity and resilience in each nation because Radden's right, sovereignty is in fact still the, you know, the core of whether or not you are going to have uh, a, a, a development future that actually can build a nation for your people. But, and that goes to things like taxation, where the international community can help, of course, is to actually end the, uh, the taxation, uh, you know, dichotomy of, uh, you know, transferring funds that should be paid in each country because that's where the money is earned outside of the country. So that's one thing globally you can do. The second thing is we can look at how we seriously take the SDGs as the basis for just and sustainable development and look at financing from a different perspective. It is indeed how we invest in a model of development that doesn't constrain the decisions of nations themselves because of the dominance of international capital, that there is some greater freedoms to end the, uh, you know, the constraints that have been holding developing countries back. Agriculture is critical for everybody, but it's not, you know, agriculture and primary source industries can't be the only industrial future for those developing countries. And then there is the sheer capacity 
that you get when you have a social protection system and just wages, as Ratton said, for the economic flow and the basis of demand in, in countries everywhere. But it's more than that. It is also about looking at, you know, where, in fact, we are um, talking a, a big agenda but not actually delivering. So infrastructure development is absolutely right. And I think I'm not sure exactly what you mean by guarantees, uh, but I'm kind of there. We've been saying for a long time that why shouldn't our pension funds, $40 trillion of workers' capital in the global economy, why shouldn't we build schools and hospitals and help with infrastructure, now, you know, green enabling green infrastructure into energy or, you know, renewable uh, um, and sustainable industries? The, the thing is that the one thing that this crisis has done is again exposed that the, right, the returns of, you know, double figures, triple, fi triple figures on any kind of investment, but particularly pension funds, are ridiculous. That's just a, a, a crashing burn uh, financial uh, future. We can survive over a working lifetime with whatever the actuaries tell us, but, you know, GDP, 3 or 4% on top. And if you have the shared risk environment, I don't think all the risk should be on... <coughs> governments, but a shared risk environment between governments and where the governments are very poor between with the IFIs, then we could do a lot to invest in infrastructure, in good jobs, in sustainable agriculture reform that isn't just about dominant big Western companies grabbing land, but is about an integrated model that builds cooperatives, that helps uh, farmers, and food security is one of our biggest challenges on the planet. So it is all about the development model and it is about rethinking the way we build sustainable futures, both in terms of the, uh, um, you know, the energy, the heavy industry, energy mix, the heavy industry transition, uh, uh, transition, livable cities, all of the things we know we have to do. But my final word, Nick, is hmm. I don't believe the people who are saying they've got, with due respect to the figures, I no longer believe people who say they've invested in green bonds. Where's the lens on that? Where is the rule book to say that it is actually, you know, they are sustainable and not just greenwashing? The, the figures sound great, but unless it is seriously investigated from a perspective of not spe speculative capital but indeed, you know, enabling green infrastructure and the development that we need everywhere in all countries, then, you know, I find it very difficult to think that those funds are actually doing what they're supposed to do when you look at it. The other thing we saw this, of course, in the, in the CSR industry, and thankfully we've moved on beyond that, we saw about $80 billion, still a lot of money invested in auditing and making CEOs feel good. It didn't stop the dehumanising rape of the environment or the exploitation of workers in our supply chain model. So we have to actually walk the talk, and that means disclosure, it means rules, it means being able to track finance and its effectiveness. So I just think all together we can all do better. Nobody is at odds with each other in the future we want. We just have to be absolutely courageous enough to say what will it take. Mm -hmm.
Great. Thank, thanks, Sharon. And um, lots of questions, actually, this is all t- touching on. But I'd like to make turn to you, Ria Marie, because um, we work together, actually, uh, on the idea of a green guilt for the UK. And the UK Chancellor has announced that the UK will be uh, issuing a green sovereign bond this, 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 this year, um, joining a number of other countries. And maybe your thoughts, particularly responding to Sharon, about how do we ensure that the proceeds of these green sovereign bonds really go to where they're needed? And then maybe, I, I think, uh, Ratan or Naeem, if there are any particular thoughts. And then we're going to have to almost finish because we're, we're really running up against time. But Rimri, over to you first, please. I do think on ensuring that green proceeds are not being greenwashed, the investors, again, have got a huge role to play in calling that out and making, you know, in the absence of us having some sort of regulatory body, it does need to be. And the investors do have an awful lot of agency and power in calling out greenwash cynicism. So at the moment, that's possibly our best recourse. And um I'm obviously, in terms of sovereign green, green guilt or sovereign green spending, that's going to need to come under so much scrutiny, as does any public spending, that I, I don't think it's a concern in terms of sovereign spending. But part of the problem we're seeing, Sharon, is is this lack of additionality. It's going back to the fact that a lot of these funds, that they'll invest in the things that are easiest to do, because these are unfamiliar sectors, unfamiliar risks. And um, so I will just quickly touch on guarantees because it's such an important point. Um, There are different examples of how you can de-risk investments so that this big wall of money that says it wants to be ESG aligned, but is going after some of the easier investments um, can be actually channeled towards riskier things. One of them is through a first loss guarantee. That's where somebody who's not seeking a commercial return will turn around and say, you can change your models in the banks because if if this if this business goes bust, I'll take the first fifty percent of the loss, and that means that as a banker, you can actually change the pricing of that loan. Um, similarly, so that's one type of, of solution. The second one would be where you turn around and you say, Do you know what, I'd be more than happy to. Um, pay for the capex for the capital expenditures for new electric buses but i'm not sure how i'm going to get the revenues back on that given that public transport is currently down the doldrums so government turn around and say rather than paying the grant to buy the bus they turn around and say i will guarantee you the revenues so that's actually so that then you're actually creating a market you're creating familiarity and eventually that market comes back and you don't need the government guarantee anymore so it's all about efficient deployment of capital and then obviously we've seen that the success of contracts for differences, for example, for supporting offshore wind revenues so that you're signaling to the market that there is long term stable cash flows, that prices for something won't be, won't drop below a certain floor level. Again, providing certainty so that more risk averse investors that are seeking a commercial return can get involved in this agenda. And that's what we need to be focused on. These sort of mechanisms, the ones that I've mentioned are obviously at the simpler end. But and when we start getting into developing countries, there are obviously more complexity. But it's the same kind of principle. And it's such an important one to get across. No more grants where wherever we can provide guarantees because we need to be crowding in private finance. Great. OK, um, Naeem and then Ratan, we're, we've got four minutes to go. So please brief, please. Naeem, first. Yeah. Let me give some concrete example that what we are doing, I think active engagement is key where we are really uh, challenging companies and trying to move the needles and in terms of communication and what, how to report on the big climate and social risk. 
I think 50% are on climate, 30% are really on social issue and fair work condition. This is everything we vote. We vote on all the General Assembly. This is one. Two, we are taking 10% of all our EAG product in terms of the management fees and reinvest them in the real economy. We are doing it on the climate uh, fund that we have, 10% of 2 billion of the funds, 10% of the management fees are reinvested in the reforestation and green energy and we are doing it uh, directly from liquid to bring it to the real economy. And we are doing it on the whole EIG product and fund that we are managing as a company. And we have been doing it for several years. Three, we are fun- launching impact fund, mm-hmm. doing private equity. And the, the curry that we are taking is evaluated on the social impact. Uh, it's not linked to the curry financially, but to the social impact that we are generating. If not, it's going directly to the real economy. Some ideas like this are really important. And Conrium has a Conrium Academy that is an obligation to all the employees to, to pass the test. And it's an open e-learning uh, for all people who would like to bridge the gap as well in education. Thanks so much. And, and last word to you, Rasm. We're going to have one more poll. So I want to have that just to see how, how the participants have, uh, have, have rated our discussion. So Rasm, just a, a, a minute from you. Please. Sure. If you look at the energy sector where all the green action has been in the main, the main people who have made money are not all these impact investors and all that. It's General Electric, Tesla, BP, Shell, old polluters. This has got to stop. Finance must stop rewarding old polluters with the bulk of making money. And therefore, I would propose one thing. I think you need to make sure that the share of profits in total returns, not total value, but total returns, has to be different, lower than before green happened. We cannot have this situation persisting where wages and other things suffer at the expense of uh, profits. And that is, I'm afraid, the track record of green so far. Okay. Every major needle in green has been moved by a past polluter, whether it's a Norwegian sovereign fund or General Electric or Tesla. It's time the financial industry got up and, you know, so we're not fools. We can see this happening. You can talk about impact investing all you want, but that's where the needle is moving. And this is wrong. This is unjust. My final point is politics is important. So if you take distributed grids, I'll stop with a small anecdote, Nick. So I have a friend who I went to college with in India. And one day I was sitting with him having a drink. He's a politician now. And I said, you know, these distributed grids are a good idea. We can have grids. said, are you trying to destroy my political career? I make power. My, my political power is exercised to the grid. So finance is to take account of these political barriers to what would otherwise be commercially viable solutions. I'll stop. Fine. Sorry. Um, really apologies for, for jumping in and apologies to the audience for not bringing more of your questions. I think we're, we're running up against the, the hour. This has been really exciting. I'm going to certainly listen back again to the discussion. It was fascinating. I was t- furiously taking notes, but I'd like to thank all of you. Um, if we have time for the final poll, could we show it now? So will we? Will we mobilize the finance needed? The first question was, can we? Uh, will we be able to mobilize the finance needed for a green and just recovery? So I'm going to give you uh, a brief uh, moment to answer that because you know know the rules. Um, so I'm going to give you a few seconds. And can we stop now, please? Let's see what the result is. 
Will we 61%? So I think uh, we can, we are able to deliver a just and, and, and green transition, 72%. Will we 61%? That's still um, uh, more than half, which is pretty good. So thanks panel. Thanks to you, Sharon Burrow. Thanks for Ratan Roy. Thanks Naeem Abu Jaidi. And thanks uh, Ria Marie Thomas. I learned a lot, really dynamic. Thank you.